I'm going to run this like Pastor Brett's been doing. I'm going to preach from the floor so I could stare at you guys, okay? What? Dude, shut up. What's the point? Oh, my goodness. What's the, I, I was talking to Brett today, and uh, I texted him like, and emailed him my message just so I got the pastor approval, and my email subject was, what's the point, bro? Literally just, what's the point? I'm tired of this. But all jokes aside, uh, my name is Ben. I see some new faces in here, some of the homies. Let's go. Um, you guys may not know this, but I've known you since you were really little, which is kind of funny. Um, I was in the, like, I was following my mom around in the nursery when you guys were babies, so that's kind of weird, but I was just chilling in there because I wasn't ready to grow up yet, but I did, so we're good. Uh, so like I said, my name is Ben. I have the privilege and honor of being a youth leader here, um, under pastors Brett and Danielle, who are on vacation this week, and they send their love. They made sure, um, to let, make, Ask me to tell you guys uh, that they're doing good. They're having a lot of fun up there with their family. Um, Mr. Vince is still a menace, so it's all good. He's walking around. He does this thing now where he just grabs Brett's ears. It's really funny. He'll carry him on his shoulders. Brett has like a scar on his ear because he just like rips those things. It's pretty funny. Um, but anyway, we've been in a series. I don't know if it's up there yet, but it's been called What's the Point? <laughs> it's pretty sick, too. Look at that. It like goes to a point. How many of you actually recognize that? That's crazy. I think Brett talked about that in the first week, but shout out the homie who made that. That's clean, bro. So we're in that series called What's the Point, and we've been talking about what? Well, good. There you go. Parables was the, was the main, what, what I was looking for, but <laughs> what the point is of the parables. Because Jesus, dude, he was crazy. He was talking in all sorts of like Morse code or whatever back in the day, right? So... In this series, we're walking through the parables, and we're trying to understand why Jesus talked the way he did and how that, that these things affect us over 2,000 years later, right? So before we take a deeper look into the parable I want to talk about tonight, um, I think it would be wise of us to revisit what a parable is. Does that make sense? We've got to set the base ground here. We can't get too buck wild before we know what we're talking about, right? So through this series... We have defined parables as short, fictitious, meaning not true, stories that are often obscure and indirect. Yet, at the same time, they unveil some special meaning. And Jesus tags this line onto most of the parables. He said, for those who have ears to hear, understand. Right? So, that's Jesus saying, some of you aren't going to get it. Some of you, this is just going to make no sense. And that was often the goal. The goal was to confuse those who didn't want to know and make clear to the people who really wanted to go, go all in, right? He was trying to divide who was in, who was out. So peop, uh, people's biggest argument for Jesus being like just a really good teacher, have you guys ever heard that? Like, well, Jesus, sure, he was like a a person, like he was a good teacher, but he's not God. You guys heard that? A lot of people's biggest argument for that is the parables, right? Because in the eyes of most people, the parables are just good teachings about like moral truth, like how to be a good person, right? Or like Brett's talked about in this series, the parable of the seed. Most people interpret that as just like, oh, well, if you're in the right soil, you're a good person, right? And to a degree, like, they do have moral issues, and they do touch on that, but that's not 
the intent of the parables, right? While it is true the parables do include moral teaching, there's so much more. If Jesus was just trying to be a good teacher, why would he be so crazy about it? Why would he make them so confusing and elusive, right? If Jesus' whole goal was just to be a good teacher, why wouldn't he just be direct and just tell you the point? We wouldn't have to ask this question. If he was a a good teacher, quote-unquote, then he wouldn't have taught this way. Does that make sense? So that's that's what shows us, hey, there's got to be something more to this. So, though it is most certainly, a, good morals are most certainly a byproduct of the parables, the main purpose of the parables, and if you guys are taking notes, any of you, um, I would encourage you to do so because you might look back at this and be like, yo, that is cool. And I, I remember learning about that in youth like a long time ago. I've done that. I still have notes from when I was a student under Pastor Brett, which was, what, four or five years ago now, right when he started? The f- right when they started, I was, it was my senior year. It's pretty crazy. But main purpose of the parables, Jesus is explaining what he is doing on earth and how the kingdom of God is being inaugurated through those things. Say it one more time. Jesus is explaining what he is doing on earth and how the kingdom of God is being inaugurated through him. Jesus is narrating his ministry. He's basically just giving a play-by-play of what he's doing through parables. He's giving the purpose of why he came and what the kingdom of God is because it's kind of a foreign concept to what the religious Jews of the time would have thought. They thought this Messiah was coming to overthrow the Roman government who'd been oppressing the Jews and that they would have this earthly kingdom that would be crazy. But a lot of the parables, Jesus starts with, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then it's nothing what they expected, right? It almost makes no sense until you plug it in with the rest of scripture and you're like, oh, that was from the Old Testament. That, oh, that lines up, that lines up. And all these prophecies get fulfilled. It's pretty nuts. But um, Jesus is essentially giving a play-by-play of his ministry. And Jesus' hope and wish is that everyone would would come to him and have ears to hear. But he also knows at the same time that there's a, that's not possible with fallen humanity, right? So he knows some aren't going to understand, and that's also part of his goal. His goal was to decipher who's in, who's out. So Pastor Brett mentioned throughout the series, these little teachings are often in response to questions that Jesus gets, right? Somebody will go up to Jesus, normally a Pharisee or some religious person, would go up to him and ask him a question. And what would Jesus do? Almost every time, he would just ask them a question back. Or he would just tell this crazy story that makes no sense. It's like, hey, do you think you could clean your room later? And he's like, well, you see, back in the 1400s, it's just like, what does that have to do with, it's a yes or no question, right? So, um, <clears throat> and then you keep deciphering further on and eventually you get to the point. But the people of the time would have been so confused, right? So rather than explaining a question, Jesus would often rearrange the, the question he was asked into a new question to the hearer. In this, uh, tonight we're going to look through a parable found in Matthew. I'm not going to get there yet, but, um, and we're going to go through those things. We're going to look at the question that he was asked, the question Jesus asks in return, and then um, what we can take away from that today. What principle or what thing about the kingdom of God could we learn, and perhaps what question could we ask in return? So if you have your Bibles out, 
um, you're welcome to open them up right now to Matthew 9. And uh, we're going to camp out in verses uh, 14 through 17. Um, Like Pastor Brett's been doing, I'm not going to put it on the screen for this one because the people, when Jesus was saying this, didn't even have this scripture. It didn't exist yet. So it was written way after. (laughs) So um, I'm just going to read it to you. But I encourage you to write it down and, like, go home and read it later. Read all of Matthew 9. It's good. Um, Tons of stories. Jesus heals the lame man who gets, like, lowered through the roof in um, the beginning of Matthew 9. But then at this part, he's um, talking to the disciples of John who are commentating on some things Pharisees have been saying. So um, if you guys, if anybody's there, everybody with their Bible, we there? We good? Cool. So Matthew 9, 14 through 17 says, Then John's disciples came up to him, uh, came up and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of a bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will, put, will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. That makes no sense, if we're being honest. Like, if you, the original question is, how is it that the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't? And Jesus says, well, you know, is that the, there's this wedding kind of thing, right? There's this bridegroom. What do you think about that? The people were probably so confused. I was, even, even studying for this, reading this, the first few times I was like, how am I going to get anything out of that? Like, what? Um, but let's paint the picture really quick. So the disciples of John, who is John the Baptist, right? So this is Jesus' cousin. And you're like, other people had disciples? What? I thought there was just the 12 that followed Jesus. No, most um, rabbis at the time or high-level people at the time all had disciples that would follow them. It was like a custom in um, the Jewish um, religion and stuff. So um, John, Jesus' cousin, had these disciples and uh, John is also the person who baptized Jesus, right? So they're, and they're cousins, so they're, they're close. Um, John baptized Jesus and declared him the Lamb of God in uh, John 1.29, if you want to skip over and read over there. But the second question in here, so the first one's about fasting, or the, the first one is about, um, let's paint the picture. The first one is about, um, yeah, fasting, and then... What is fasting, right? Biblical fasting, because today we, we've made it all this random stuff. Like, I'm going to fast social media. That's good, but that's not what the Bible means when it says you should fast, right? Biblical fasting is always rooted in abstaining from food or drink, right? Um, fasting was also a sign of piety and devotion to something. Uh, so when the Jews fasted, they were fasting out of devotion to Yahweh, who's God, Right? However, fasting in the Old Testament was also, more often than not, a sign of sorrow and mourning for something that went wrong. Family member died, you would fast, and you would mourn their loss, right? That was most commonly, um, and then there's all the Jewish festivals and holidays. A lot of them involved fasting. 
because they were mourning past things, it, a sign of remembrance, that kind of thing. But almost more often than not, it was a sign of like it was dreary and sorrowful, right? So the disciples of Jesus were not fasting, unlike the disciples of John and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the time. So John's disciples went up to Jesus, and the first question they asked is, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus immediately replies with another question. Literally the next verse, he says, in verse 15, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away, then they'll fast. So what does that mean, right? Brings me to my first point. Relationship with Jesus should be the cause for celebration. Relationship with Jesus should be a cause for celebration. This is when Jesus starts to confuse people, right? John's disciples were probably thinking, wait a second, what? We were asking why they don't fast. Why are we talking about a wedding now? Who's this bridegroom? What does this have to do with literally anything, right? In this wedding analogy, Jesus speaks about the bridegroom. Well, who's the bridegroom? In the Old Testament, which is the scripture that they had, they didn't have the New Testament yet, so that most of them would have been accustomed to this kind of analogy, the bridegroom was often referenced to Yahweh or God in the Old Testament. So, in this analogy, in what Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here. There's no, pl- there's no reason to mourn while he is with them. Jesus is saying, I'm God, I'm here, right? He's saying there's no reason to mourn and be sorrowful because the bridegroom is here. As Brett's preached about in the Who is Jesus series, Jesus is God. So the analogy there, Jesus is making a crazy claim, right? He's publicly basically saying, if the people would have had ears to hear and understand the scripture of the past, they would have known, oh, shoot, this guy just claimed to be God, right? That's a huge claim, obvi- and it ended up being what got him crucified, right? So what Jesus is saying, he's setting up this wedding picture, and he's saying nobody fasts at a wedding. Nobody fasts at a banquet, right? That makes no sense. It's a time for celebration, which is what it would have been if, if God was on earth. It's a time for celebration, right? That's what Jesus is implying. He's saying, that's like showing up to Thanksgiving and being like, nah, you know what, I'm good. I actually don't want any of that pumpkin pie that looks delicious or anything. Or for like me and my family, we do this thing on Christmas, dude. (laughs) Every Christmas morning, we make the most, yeah, my dad's hands were up. He's praising. We make the most bussin' donuts. You'll, oh my, dude, they change your life. The homemade like donut holes with like cinnamon sugar and stuff on them. I will literally eat them the entire day. We make like 60 of them for 10 people, and I probably have 20 of them. No joke. I every time they're fresh out the fryer too. We like hand make the dough, everything. It's oh, you got to try it, man. You got to try it. That's from a movie. Whoever got it, that was cool. Um, but a relationship with Jesus should be a celebration, not a time for sorrow and mourning. So, if Jesus is the bridegroom and he's present, there's no reason for his disciples to fast. He's in the midst, right? However, Jesus further develops by saying, when the groom is taken away, then they will fast. It is also really interesting, I was doing like a full study of this, the Greek word, which is the original language it was written in, for taken here is apyro, which some scholars argue connotes 
a violent and unwelcome removal in the context. So when the groom is unwelcomely removed or violently removed, then they will fast. Sounds a lot like the crucifixion to me. Right? Jesus is literally saying, remember what I said earlier? The parables are stories of what Jesus came to earth to accomplish. This is the explanation. Jesus gives it to him right here. He says, Jesus is the bridegroom, and the bridegroom's going to be taken away. Jesus is foreshadowing his crucifixion, which is wild. And I'm sure some of the people would have got that, and some of them would have been so confused. The people that understood the scriptures and understood the bridegroom as God would have been like, oh, shoot. So Jesus is narrating what he's doing on earth. Then Jesus seemingly shifts the whole topic of conversation, which leads to my second point. Following Jesus requires surrender. Following Jesus requires surrender. So Jesus goes on in the scripture in Matthew 9, and we'll, talk, we'll read 16 through 17, which again, I don't have a slide for, so just listen closely. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth, or some translations say new cloth. So nobody puts a piece of new fabric on a piece of old fabric. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So let's break that down for a second. The entire conversation stemmed from a question why his disciples are not fasting. Jesus reshapes the whole thing by announcing that he's in the midst, so it's a time for celebration, and the time of fasting will come when he's gone, when he's taken away. Then he makes this weird comment about new and old cloth and new and old wine and wineskins. So, real quick, before we get into that, little history lesson. So, uh, does anybody sew in here? Yeah, I know Candace does, so I stared right at her. But, <laughs> but oh, Big Ken. Yeah, I know you sewing, bro. He's making some drippy clothes. But, so when you're sewing, if you, say you like rip your pants on the knee, right? If you're going to put a patch on there and the, the pants are kind of old, you don't put a brand new piece of fabric there. Because what will the brand new fabric do when you wash it a bunch? Shrink. So it'll shrink, and then it will just rip all the work you just did, right? Doesn't make any sense. And then the same thing, everybody's probably like, what the heck is a wineskin? I don't know if they teach that in school these days. Didn't when I was there. But let's break that down. Jesus talks about wineskins. So a wineskin in the ancient time was like typically made out of goat or sheep leather after it died. And it, they would sew it into like this bag thing that was like, Anybody ever have like a camelback backpack for like hiking? So it's like a sack in there. You just fill with water. That's essentially what it was. It's kind of like a bottle, but it's made out of <laughs> skin. <laughs> kind of morbid, but hey, got to do what you got to do back then. They didn't have plastic. Um, <laughs> so it was sewn into something like a bag, but was it was watertight because it was leather. So what they would do is they would crush grapes, and then they would pour it in the wineskin, and it would ferment and kind of expand into wine, right? So the wine would go in, the wineskin would expand. So what happens after that is the wineskin would get brittle. It would get old and it stretched out because the w when wine ferments, it expands. So it would push it to the limit. Um, so what Jesus is saying is he's saying it makes no sense for you to put a new piece of cloth onto an old thing. And it makes no sense for you to put new wine 
that hasn't expanded yet into an old brittle wineskin. They're both just going to break, right? What does that mean for us? First, Jesus talks about a wedding. Now he's talking about (laughs) sewing class and how to make drinks. What's the point, right? The point is, and if you're taking notes, write this down. The old and the new are not compatible. The new covenant needs new receptacles. How do we become a new receptacle? We surrender to the one who created us. The Old Testament law, the Pharisees were trying to follow, including all these special fasts and all these special like festivals, holidays that the Jews had from their history. It's good to remember those things, but those things will never lead to salvation. Only the new wine of the new covenant Jesus is creating through his blood will suffice. Jesus claims that himself in uh, John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, following Jesus, requires you to surrender. As I was studying for this message, I came across this quote. Um, It says, old forms and habits cannot contain the kingdom of grace and joy that Jesus brings. You can't put new things in old vessels, right? When we try and put all the grace and all the love and all the mercy that Jesus poured out on the cross for us into into the same old habits and into the same old things, all we're doing is making it worse when it tears. When our wineskins burst, we're trying to pour new things into broken things. It doesn't make any sense. That's what Jesus is saying. When we try and use Jesus as a patch, when we try and just, oh, I messed up, man. I'll go to church, though. That'll, that'll fix it, right? Or, oh, I really did something stupid, but I'll just pray about it for a second and then just go continue living exactly how I was, <laughs> right? That's not very effective, when we try and use Jesus as medicine, only when we feel sick we are, and when we experience something bad and then we burst and tear, we're left pointing a finger at Jesus saying, do you even exist? When in reality, we didn't even give him a real chance. We never surrendered. We were just using him as a medicine, using him as something to distract us from our failures. We were just running to him when it made sense. We never let him transform our hearts. All this to say, bad things still happen as a Christian. I'm not saying that once you just become a Christian, everything gets great and your life is all sunshine and rainbows. Unfortunately, it's not always that way. We live in a fallen world. But what I am saying will happen is your perspective will be transformed once you fully surrender to Jesus, even when the bad things happen. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. What Paul is saying is, yeah, things are going to happen. But the, the new wine, the taste of that salvation, we know that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed because of Christ. It's not even worth comparing. That's like, powerful. I was reading that, not even preparing for this message. I was just reading Romans last week, and that messed me up. (laughs) Like, how can you say that it's not even comparable? Like, that's the most drastic thing you could say in that circumstance, right? 
that's that's pretty crazy. So, I ask, um, what is new wine and new clothes if we're just going to place it into old rip containers that will break at the seams when that new thing enters it? You may you may be thinking, sheesh, this like took a downer. This is a massive bummer, man. This is trash. Here's the good part. Third point, God restores. God restores. The good news is that God is in the restoration business. Historically, God has always been restoring broken things. He delights in it, right? The um, Obviously, the number one that we can just rip immediately that will show us that God is a restorative God is he sent his son to die on the cross for each and every one of us, right? That alone is proof that God's into restoring things. He's in it for every eight billion whatever number amount of people there are on the planet now forever and ever amen right but there's also proof just in the old testament scripture the prophet ezekiel speaks about god's um restorative plan for israel even though they constantly disobeyed him you know how many times israel walked away from god in the desert innumerable they were oh what's this idol (laughs) i'm gonna worship that sorry yahweh they were doing that all the time right? So God spoke through Ezekiel, and he said, I will give Israel a new heart in a new spirit, removing the heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. He says this multiple times through Ezekiel, almost like verbatim, word for word. He says it in Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 36, 26. If you guys are taking notes, he says that in Ezekiel eleven nineteen and then 36, 26. So God what, God, what that shows us is Yahweh is into restoring things. He wants to. It's his will. In another part of Scripture, it says that Jesus wills that everybody would come to him, right? <clears throat> the Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that, Therefore, anyone in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. That one up there? Yeah. So the the really important part is the in Christ part. Remember, we're talking about surrender right here. And then as the second point is surrender. In Christ entails surrendering to Christ. Right? Paul also states in his letter to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. Underline that part. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God restores, right? What do these verses have in common? They have two things immediately off the, off the back. The fact that God is in the restoration business, that's what he wants to do. However, the tough part, the other thing these verses have in common is the fact that surrender is required to get the benefit. That first one is, if anyone is in Christ, right? Not just the new creation has come. The new creation has come to those who are in Christ. The next one, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. That means you've got to surrender to him to the point of death, <laughs> which is kind of scary. I'm not going to lie, Right? But in order to get the benefit that Paul is talking about so much, you have to be surrendered. The benefit is for those who are in Christ and those who have been crucified with Christ. 
right? So what's the moral of the story? As I, I'm going to bring it bring it down nice and easy tonight, not too crazy. Ken, what are you laughing at, bro? But <laughs> I'm going to bring... Oh, Brett typed those on vacation, so text him and literally roast him. I'm just kidding. Uh, don't do that. That's really mean. He's with his family. But I told him not even to do them. Like, hey, don't trip. Don't do them if you don't have to. But <laughs> he did it and then messed it up. Are you kidding me? He messed it up the last time I preached too. not going to lie. not going to shade the guy, but that's twice. That's two strikes, Brett, if you're watching. I'm just kidding. Love you. Yeah, he set me up, dude. Hope you're having fun out there. Just kidding. But <laughs> what's the moral of this whole story? The moral of the whole story is relationship with Jesus is a, is a cause for celebration, right? And that's something we still have today. There, Jesus was physically in the midst, but now we have his Holy Spirit. That's still, Jesus says, even greater things will happen with the Spirit. So now, it's still just as much of a time for celebration as it was, right? Then, in order to get these things, Jesus says, you got to surrender. You got to surrender. We got to stop pouring all this new wine, this new blessing that Jesus, he has a whole new life for us. We can't keep putting all this new blessing into old broken things, right? The good news of that is Jesus wants to give it to you because God restores. All you got to do is ask him, right? God's in the restoration business. He's there for you at any time, any time. He wills that for every person. So as I bring it, bring it down, we'll keep it, keep it clean, keep it short. Um, let's just bow our heads real quick. And uh, maybe you're in this room and you're thinking, man, I haven't been living a life that's truly surrendered to Jesus. But I want to. Or maybe you're in here and you're thinking, I've never made that decision. At all. And I want to. Or maybe you're in another group that said, I, man, I made that decision years ago, but I haven't really been keeping up with it, right? I've drifted off. I want to go back, but I just don't know how. If you're in any of those groups and you want to go back, you want to surrender, you want Jesus to be the king of your life and just lead and guide you, would you just please raise your hand? Sweet. I see those hands. Thank you. Heavenly Father, you see the hands that are raised in this place. Thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross over 2,000 years ago, God. Tonight we surrender ourselves over to you. Replace our hearts, oh God, with a new heart. God, help us to live a life of surrender as we pursue you more and more every day. God, let your spirit pour out over us as we continue to press into your blessing, as we continue to chase after you. God, allow the new wine and the new clothes to be filled with a new thing. As the song we were singing tonight, God, you're doing a new thing. You're doing a new thing in us, God. So I just pray your, your blessing, your spirit would just pour out over these students as we go out. God, I know school just started back up. God, I just pray that you would be with them every day. Lead them, guide them, go before them. And as they are surrendered to you, continue to intercede for them. In Jesus' name, amen.